Hello, Player One. Welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. And I'm JP. For today's episode, we will be celebrating Nintendo's 134th birthday. Happy birthday, Nintendo. Woo! Player One, as we know, Nintendo is a big player in game industry, obviously, and there are so many games that we've played throughout our lifetime together with Nintendo. But this time, we're not focusing on the games themselves. We want to talk about where Nintendo actually came from and how they came to be. Right, JP? You need to be careful, Gabby. Of course, a lot of us have that Nintendo nostalgia of growing up with Mario, but hey, I know some kids, they grew up with Sonic and Sega stuff only, yeah? Ooh! I know, I know. But I think, yeah, most people definitely have had Nintendo in their life. If you're here listening to us, the chances are super high that you grew up playing Mario, Zelda, Pokemon, maybe not all of them, like I did, <laughs> but at least one of these, right? So we don't want to focus too much on the games, the consoles, everything that we know about Nintendo to some extent already. We kind of want to look more, how did the company actually come to exist in the first place? Because it turns out that, yeah, the company existed for a hundred years already by the time the Game Boy came out. So Yeah, that's true. So let's get into it, JP. Do you want to start off by telling us what does Nintendo actually mean? That is a very good question. Nintendo is obviously a Japanese company, and it's a Japanese word, and it's written in Japanese kanji characters. So the way you interpret those singular individual symbols, it's left up for interpretation. So you need someone who is a bit more familiar with the language to actually explain to you the intricacies of how that can mean this or that. On surface level, it's commonly interpreted to mean leave luck to heaven, but no one actually knows if that's the real etymology for Nintendo. Not even the Yamauchi family remembered, is this actually what it's supposed to mean? It can also be alternatively translated to the Temple of Free Hanafuda. So where did it all start? Nintendo was founded as Nintendo Kopai by artisan Fusajiro Yamauchi on September 23, 1889. Nintendo was founded in Kyoto, where they always have been headquartered, even until now. Yamauchi opened a shop to sell his hand-painted Hanafuda cards, which he painted onto Mulberry and Mitsumata tree bark. These cards are used to play card games. Hanafuda itself translates to flower cards, named after the imagery on them. They are smaller than Western playing cards and not numbered. The cards are a lot thicker though. Um, we actually have a set of these Hanafuda cards and we always think it's really beautiful because they got really beautiful paintings on them. They're really tiny and they're really thick. What do you think about them cards, JP? I think they're great just to hold in your hands. It's so different to Western playing cards, which is the only thing you ever get used to having in your hands. It's either Western playing cards or I guess when you were a kid, like Yu-Gi-Oh card. But even they feel very similar. So it's nice to have something smaller. But like you said, it's a lot thicker. Uh, it has like an actual textured back. Mm -hmm. It does feel very uh, luxurious, you might say, compared to normal Western playing cards. That's true. 
This deck of cards consists of 12 suits, each with a seasonal plant that represents the month of the year. The cards have a rich history and many different games can be played with them. Popular choices are Koi Koi and Haji Haji. In 1882, almost all forms of gambling were banned, with the exception of Hanafuda cards, which were tolerated because their design meant Gambling might be difficult with them because they didn't actually contain numbers and the cards just contain paintings. Yeah, but where there is a will, there is a way. That's true, because the cards proved popular with the Yakuza anyhow. Even their name inspired by Hanafuda card culture itself. Yeah, so the name Yakuza actually comes from a traditional Japanese card game played with Hanafuda cards, which was called Oicho Kabu. It's basically similar to Blackjack, but the Rules are like a tiny bit different. If you had a hand that made 8, 9, 3, that was basically a useless hand, and the numbers would read out Yakuza, and that was a name that was applied to the useless Yakuza, basically. Yes, and they ran gaming parlors in Kyoto, and other manufacturers stopped producing the cards in fear of being associated with the criminal underworld. Yamauchi fearlessly continued making Hanafuda cards, and his particular Hanafuda cards, the one that he produced, became very popular. It became so popular that he was unable to keep up with the high demand. He hired and trained apprentices to manufacture them now. He saw rapid expansion of his business and opened another shop in Osaka. So either in 1902 or 1907, because different documents show different dates here, Nintendo started making Western-style playing cards too. They only wanted to export these abroad at first, but they actually proved very successful in Japan too, and so Nintendo saw a huge commercial success with their Western-style playing cards at home as well. Japan was actually at war with Russia for two years, uh, from 1904 until 1905, and during this time, Nintendo did also go for a little bit of trouble because the Japanese authorities would levy some of the leisure companies in Japan. So they made a deal with Japanese tobacco where they would sell their cards at various cigarette shops around the country. So let's talk a little bit more about the Yamauchi family. So Fusajiro Yamauchi, he didn't have any sons, so he wasn't able to pass the business down to a male heir. He did, however, have a daughter, Tei. Tei was married to a man named Sekirio Kaneda, and as is common in Japanese tradition, known as Mukuyoshi, meaning adopted son-in-law, he adapted his son-in-law, who would then take on the family name Yamauchi. Sekirio and Tei would soon give birth to a daughter called Kimi. In 1929, Fusajiro made Sekirio the second president of Nintendo, now Japan's largest card manufacturer, and retired. The first president of Nintendo would not have any more involvement in the company following his retirement. Fusajiro passed away on the 1st of January 1940 at the age of 80. Now we're entering the second reign of Nintendo with Sekirio Yamauchi. Sekirio entered into partnership with another company and renamed the company to Yamauchi Nintendo & Co. He built a new headquarter next to the original building in 1933. In 1947, he established a distribution company called Marufuku Company Limited that was responsible for the sales and marketing. Funnily enough, this is actually the company that would eventually become the present-day Nintendo that we know. Yeah, it came out of the sales and marketing distribution company rather than the original umbrella company, if that makes sense. Yeah. During his presidency, Sekirio aimed to make the company more efficient, introduce an assembly line, and also fostered a culture of competition between the managers to increase their performance. 
he would introduce more Western games to be manufactured by Nintendo, such as Poker and Pinnacle. Sekirio and Tei had a daughter, Kimi, as you mentioned before, JP, which meant that the Yamauchi family, once again, had no male heir to inherit the company. So, again, they planned to one day adopt their son-in-law, Shikanojo Inaba, an artist employed for the company that inherited the Yamauchi name from Kimi, in anticipation of one day taking over the business. Shikanojo and Kimi had a son called Hiroshi. When Hiroshi was five years old, his father abandoned the family. Kimi sent Hiroshi to live with his grandparents, Sekirio and Tei Yamauchi. This time it was the World War II. Of course, during the war, people didn't really care about leisure and games during this time, so Nintendo naturally suffered from this. Hiroshi got married in 1945 and the company was partly kept alive thanks to financial injection from Hiroshi's wife, Michiko Inaba, who came from a wealthy background. Sekirio Yamauchi's health started to decline and he suffered a stroke in 1948. He retired in 1949. Near death, he calls Hiroshi to his side and asks him, in the absence of his father who abandoned the family when Hiroshi was only five, that he drops out of university and leads Nintendo as the third president. Hiroshi agrees on the two conditions. One, he would be the only member of the family to run the company. And second, he would have full authority to fire anyone that wouldn't welcome the change or question his leadership. Hiroshi became the third president of Nintendo in 1950 and he swiftly started to fire the so-called old guard of Nintendo one by one. This included managers and workers that had dedicated a large chunk of their working lives to Nintendo as well. He did this partially to establish himself as an authority figure. He wasn't some sort of draconian supervillain either though, so uh, he's also been described as a very forward-thinking businessman who was willing to take a chance and nurture young talent and to chase new ideas, as we will see later on as well. Some of his first innovations were to rebrand Marufuku Co. to Nintendo Karuta. In 1952, he modernized Nintendo by introducing a new headquarters and consolidating the production plants that were scattered around Kyoto. Just a year later, in 1953, he ensured that Nintendo would become the first Japanese manufacturer of plastic playing cards. He was astonished when in 1956 he visited the US's dominant playing card manufacturer, the so-called United States Playing Card Company, also known as USPCC, based in Cincinnati. He was shocked seeing that the largest company in his industry worked out of a small office and it started to give him anxiety and fear that his industry was actually slowly dying. This compelled him to try to diversify Nintendo and find other business ventures to keep the company alive. So in 1958, he made a deal with Disney to allow the use of Disney characters on Nintendo's playing cards. They built new relationships within the entertainment industry, specifically now with children's toys. And it was a big step to move away from the games they produced previously, whose main audience was quite naturally adults and was associated with gambling. The following year, they sold 600,000 packs of playing cards, a commercial success. So in 1962, Hiroshi enlists stock for Nintendo on the second section of the Osaka Stock Exchange and the Kyoto Stock Exchange. Hiroshi tried to take the company into several different directions during the 60s. In 1963, he renamed the company to what we know today, Nintendo. Hiroshi was becoming desperate to find other way to make profit, as they were now dependent on the children's market, but sales from the Disney cards started to decline, 
adults were gravitating to other pastime hobbies like bowling, pachinko, and nightlife became more popular too. This was topped off by the Tokyo Olympics in 1964, which saw an economic boom for Japan as a whole, but saturated the playing cards business. Simply put, the Japanese just stopped buying and playing cards, and Nintendo's stock fell from 900 yen to 60 yen. Nintendo reached a new low and would go through a phase of rediscovery until later they reimagined themselves to what we know of them today. So as mentioned before, Hiroshi at this time trying to find other way to make profit. Desperate to find other business venture, Hiroshi and Nintendo double in making new instant rice product, which was unfortunately not successful and quickly ditched. I hope they were making this. I would have definitely bought Nintendo Instant Rice. I know, exactly. Please do make this, Nintendo, if you listen to this somehow. But yes, they also created a taxi company called Daya, which was actually doing well and modestly successful to start off with. But Hiroshi became tired of having to constantly negotiate and deal with the taxi driver unions, so he later ditched on this venture as well. Allegedly, Nintendo tried its hand in the Love Hotel business too, though there are not many sources regarding this, and some consider this to perhaps be an urban myth, although Nintendo has never refused nor commented on this. By the late 60s, Nintendo decided to go back to basic and do what it knows best, making games. They started by producing classic tabletop games such as chess, shogi, go, and mahjong. 1970 would prove a major turning point for the company. The stock listing in Osaka promoted them to the first section of the stock exchange. Their headquarter was reconstructed and enlarged by this time as well. So we followed the Yamauchi family for quite a while now, but let's take a step back and see what other people were actually involved in creating Nintendo and helped them to become the video game producers that we know them as today. Let's look at Gunpei Yokoi, who was born on the 10th of September 1941 and graduated from the Doshisha University with a degree in electronics. Following his graduation, he works for Nintendo at the assembly line in one of their factories. And Gunpei actually made a toy for his own amusement during spare time at work at the assembly line. One day Hiroshi Yamauchi visits the factory and he notices this toy that Yokoi made for himself. So he asks Yokoi in 1966, can you turn this into a, a real product? Can you develop this into a product that Nintendo can sell? Gunpei complies and he finished the product and it would be called the Ultra Hand. If that sounds familiar, then it's because the Ultra Hand ability in Zelda Tears of the Kingdom is also named after this toy. It looks very simple in a good way. It looks funny and it sold more than 1 million units in Japan. Yeah, it kind of looked like those extending arm for UFO catcher, if you see it, like the toy catcher thing that you see in the arcade. Yeah, that's true. Gunpei continued to make other toys for Nintendo following the Ultra Hand success. One very noteworthy and funny example is the Love tester from 1969. It was the first product from Nintendo that actually used real electronic components. And it's probably one of their strangest products too. The device determines how much two people love each other by both people holding onto metal sensors and then the score being displayed on the main casing of the device, giving it a score of between 1 and 100. Gunpei actually used to joke around flirting with women saying, hey, did you know that this works better if the girl kisses the guy? 
Gunpei worked on toys until Nintendo started making video games for real, at which point he became one of Nintendo's first game designers. Sometime before 1972, Nintendo created its first electronics development team and Gunpei was made its general manager. In 1978, the manufacturing division split into its two R&D departments. Gunpei remained manager of R&D 1. Yeah, I believe during this time, Nintendo actually focused and put all of their money and resources to this research and development teams because they wanted to keep evolving, basically. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. One day in the late 70s, Gunbei was traveling along the Shinkansen, which we know it as the bullet train, and he noticed a bald man playing with his calculator. This gave him the idea for a watch that doubled as a miniature game, so he pitched this idea to Hiroshi Yamauchi during a drive to a meeting with the CEO of Sharp. Within a week, he was given the green light to go ahead with this idea, and he really uh, rolled with this calculator idea because he used components from calculators as well, so integrated circuits, those small circular button batteries, and he exploited the fact that LCD screens were really cheap at the time because Casio and Sharp were having a really hard rivalry at the time, so it drove down the price for these components. And this is how the Game & Watch is born in 1980, Nintendo's first handheld device. The first Game & Watch release came with Ball, which is called Toss-Up in America. So the Game & Watch consoles, they could only, they came with one game, they weren't interchangeable, they didn't have cartridges, it came with whatever game was on it. In order to make a Game & Watch version for Donkey Kong, Gunpei Yokoi was faced with a problem. Previously, Game & Watch games could only take you left and right. But Donkey Kong obviously involves the up and down axis as well. So, he realizes that having a separate button for up, down, left, right was not super natural for players. Back then we still had joysticks or buttons. So he invents the D-pad. The D-pad would solve what Yokoi felt were the biggest problems with giving the player buttons for directions. Which was namely that the player would have constantly had to look down to see which button they were pressing. Instead, the D-pad allows a natural feel with a seesawing motion for the player to naturally understand what direction they're pressing. The design was patented in 1984 and won an Engineer Emmy Award. All major consoles by Nintendo and the others featured a D-pad or modified version off of it in order to get around the patenting once the D-pad was introduced. The patent expired in 2005. Hey, talking about Donkey Kong? Gunpei actually supervised and mentored Shigeru Miyamoto during the process of making Donkey Kong. It was Shigeru's first time creating a game. He explained many of the intricacies of game design to him and the project was only approved after Gunpei brought Shigeru's game ideas to Hiroshi Yamauchi's attention. After the worldwide success of Donkey Kong, him and Shigeru would work together again on Mario Bros. Gunpei proposed the multiplayer concept and the ability for Mario to jump unharmed from great heights. Following Mario Brothers, he produced several games with the R&D 1 team, including Metroid. His arguably biggest contribution to Nintendo is that he designed the Game Boy. He didn't always strike gold though. Nintendo rushed the release of the Virtual Boy that he and his team worked on in 1995. So, during that time, Nintendo pushed for the release in order to dedicate more resource to the upcoming Nintendo 64. Unfortunately, because of this, the Virtual Boy flopped. 
Shortly after, but coincidentally, he decided to retire after 31 years with Nintendo. It was not because Virtual Boy failed. He left with several of his colleagues to form a new company called Koto and helped to create the Tamagotchi and led the development of the Bandai Wonder Swan, a handheld game console. Speaking of Tamagotchi, did you used to have one, JP? No, I didn't, but I did have a Pokemon Pikachu Tamagotchi and also two Digimon Digivices. Yeah. They are Tamagotchis, but not original Tamagotchis. That's true, I guess. yes. Yeah. I, I used to... I believe I used to own a few, but my sister definitely had quite a lot of Tamagotchis. Yeah, I think they were quite cheap back then, yeah, actually. It wasn't didn't cost the world, did it, really, to have one, yeah? Seeing how my parents kept buying one for my sister, probably, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On October 4th, 1997, Gunpei was riding in a car driven by his associate at Suokiso on the Hokoriko Expressway when the car rear-ended a truck. The two men left the car to inspect the damage, and Gunpei was hit and injured by a passing car and confirmed dead two hours later. His driver at Suo luckily survived, but he suffered a fractured rib. Let's take another step back to just before Nintendo made video games. Now we're looking at Masayuki Uemura. He graduated from Chiba Institute of Technology with a degree in electronic engineering. Afterwards, he worked for Sharp, selling solar cell batteries and similar technologies to several companies, including Nintendo. Gunpei Yokoi discussed with Uemura the possibility of using Sharp's technology, specifically light detection, for a shooting game. Uemura designed the Beam Gun series with Nintendo, the first electronic toy ever in Japan. It was released in 1970. Later the following year, Uemura would become employed by Nintendo directly. In 1973, Nintendo releases the next game made by Uemura, Laser Clay Shooting System. It's an arcade game where players would shoot at pigeons. It's basically Duck Hunt, right? Yeah, heavily inspired to become Duck Hunt later on. Ah, yeah. interesting. When Hiroshi Yamauchi split Nintendo into two separate R&D teams, R&D 1 and R&D 2, Uemura would lead R&D 2, a division focused on hardware. Uemura led the development of the Color TV game line of dedicated consoles. It was the first ever video game console made by Nintendo, a punk clone licensed to them by Magnavox Odyssey, which held the rights to the game design, and it was released in 1977. In November 1981, Uemura receives a call from Hiroshi Yamauchi, who asked of him to make something that lets you play arcade games at home in front of your TV. He and his R&D2 team began creating a system that would be able to play Donkey Kong. The product they would make would become the family computer, Famicom for short, or as we know it in the West, the NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, released in July 1983. The console is credited to recovering the home video game market following the video game crash. In 1988, Uemura and the R&D2 team would work together with Ken Kutaragi, an engineer from Sony, who worked on the Super Nintendo's sound chip and would later develop the PlayStation. Uemura also produced games for Nintendo, most memorably Ice Climber. Uemura retired from Nintendo in 2004, remaining an advisor in the research and engineering department. He became a professor at Risumeikan University, researching and teaching about video games, 
What a dream job. No, 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 no. What, what a perfect place to learn things. That's true. We should probably enroll in this place now. Yeah. Uemura died on the 6th of December 2021, age 78. Now that we talked about Yokoi and Uemura, two people that were heavily involved in the hardware aspects of getting Nintendo into the console market, let's take a look at Shigeru Miyamoto, who is actually someone that was more into the artistic design element of Nintendo. Shigeru graduated in the early 70s from Kanazawa Municipal College of Industrial Arts with a degree in industrial design. He initially wanted to become a manga artist before considering a career in video games. Through a mutual friend of his father, Miyamoto was able to land an interview with Hiroshi Yamauchi, and after showing off some of the toys that he created, he secured a role as an apprentice in the planning department at Nintendo in 1977. He started small at Nintendo, creating some of the art for Nintendo's arcade cabinets, namely for one of the arcade games called Sheriff. Around that time, Nintendo was desperately trying to break out into the American market as well, and they tried to do this with a game called Radar Scope, but they were unsuccessful with that game in breaking out into the American market. So they had a lot of unused units that were sitting around, and they tasked Shigeru Miyamoto with converting those units into a different game. Miyamoto was heavily inspired by American themes in order to make this happen. He was looking at things such as Popeye, The Beauty and the Beast, and Kong. He was also supervised by Gunpei Yokoi, as we mentioned earlier. And the result was, of course, Donkey Kong, released in 1981. Massive, hugely successful arcade hit worldwide, and also, as you may remember, the first arcade game with an overarching plot. Due to Donkey Kong's massive success, Shigeru carried on working on the sequels as well. Donkey Kong Jr. released in 1982 and Donkey Kong 3 released in 1983, as well as Mario Bros. also released in 1983. Miyamoto would then create two of the most successful games for the Famicom or NES, Super Mario Bros. and The Legend of Zelda. He has helped Nintendo in various capacities, from directing, designing, and producing too many games to count or to list. Yeah, there's, there's a reason they call him the Spielberg of video games and even the father of modern video games. But for the sake of it, let's just list just a couple of them. Yeah, Pokemon, F-Zero, Star Fox, and Pikmin. Miyamoto's philosophy is first-hand experience. He believes that if he enjoys the game, others will too. In his words... That's the point, not to make something sell, something very popular, but to love something and make something that we creators can love. It's the very core feeling we should have in making games. Basically, he wants the players to feel about the games what the developer felt themselves. There are so many more people that were an integral part to Nintendo's achievements and successes. But all we wanted to do for this episode is show you guys how Nintendo came to be what they are today because they are just so old and they have such a rich history, deeply rooted in Japanese culture as well. We just wanted to focus on a few people for now. There's definitely other people that had a massive hand in how Nintendo is what it is today, such as Satoru Iwata. So while we missed out a lot, stay tuned as we discover more history of video games in future episodes to come. So, hope you've been enjoying the journey, Player One. As usual, new episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. 
Say hi to us by visiting our website, gaminghistory.club, and let us know what topics you'd like to hear. Or you can just share your favorite video game stories with us. So hang tight and play some games until we return in two weeks' time. No cheating, player one. See you in two weeks. Thank you.